Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air again with you guys. And here we are um, discussing Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse. And I must say it's been a great ride so far, and it will continue to be with this particular um, series, um, given that, you know, here I've spent a lot of time covering other aspects of history that fascinates me, but um, I've been very impressed nonetheless that many of you all whom have been uh, loyal listeners of mine are enjoying this um, series on lighthouses. After all, we've uh, come to realize that lighthouses have been around for a long time, perhaps longer than we would have originally assumed, and the presence of lighthouses alone have been um, assisting mankind in several ways since their first um, inception, uh, regardless of whether it's been in America or elsewhere throughout the world. But we are discussing the second part, or let alone the final part, to the uh, chapter on Lights of a New Nation. And in this um, second part, we're going to learn about the, the first methods or practices behind lighting America's lighthouses. And we're also going to learn about uh, two men, one a European, another an American, whom were the uh, forefront uh, leaders of their day behind um, instituting new measures for lighting lighthouses that... Um, that not only just provided better uh, luminosity or luminescence, but uh, gave uh, ships a better sense of um, safety, or let alone a better sense of um, comfort in knowing that um, no matter where they were on the seas when they spotted a lighthouse, that the um, the distance was um, determined based off of the uh, brighter um, luminescence. So... Fasten your seatbelts because we do have a lot to cover, but nonetheless, it's also um, stuff to cover that's relevant because uh, not only will this information be beneficial here, but some of it could become of uh, significant use down the road in another um, chapter of Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse. So our first uh, leadoff question is the following. What were the first methods, or let alone practices, behind lighting America's lighthouses? Well, when I think of the first methods, we've got to go back in time to the the 17th century as well as into the 18th century. And maybe even the start of the 19th century, too. But the first uh, methods, or let alone practices, behind lighting America's lighthouses, or I should say the brilliant beacons, because uh, after all, they've been brilliant since they were first um, first instituted into uh, use. So the first lighthouses used candles made from tallow. Anybody know what tallow is? It's a hard, fatty substance, or rather what we call animal fat. And if uh, tallow wasn't um, an option, uh, people could turn to crude lamps, which burned oil from whales, seals, including fish. What is crude oil? Non-refined oil. At the start of the 19th century, or let alone the start of the 19th century, saw sperm whale oil become the top method or let alone practice for illumination. 
Whale oil burned in lamps known as spider lamps. Well, folks, I, here's something to point out. Lamps weren't just referred to as lamps. We had different kinds of lamps, even in colonial times as well as into the start of the 19th century. But the spider lamps were more sophisticated in large part to having more wicks, which could generate a greater abundance of light illumination. You know, sometimes it's easy to think that all we have is just this one um, one candle or, or let alone one wick. And yes, you can light that one wick in, in the hopes that you have some kind, some type of uh, luminescence that could generate um, as far out as possible. But when you have more than one wick, say a dozen wicks, the greater um, the ability to um, generate um, large amounts of um, light illumination. Ironically, the first spider lamp in colonial America was placed at the Sandy Hook Lighthouse in New Jersey. That's the same lighthouse that became um, known as uh, Lighthouse uh, Refuge during the American Revolutionary War when um, runaway slaves to um, loyalists who were um, choosing to remain loyal to the crown would go as a means for uh, seeking refuge to get away from those whom um, did not from those whom didn't like them most notably uh, patriots but uh, interesting enough the first spider lamp yes was uh, placed at the Sandy Hook lighthouse and these lamps were hung from ceilings along with being held in place via receptacles. So remember, folks, these, uh, you know, these lamps have to be hung. I mean, they're just not going to be placed on the uh, ground or placed on um, a table to, um, to be able to um, give off their light. They've got to be hung somewhere so that um, there's enough, um, what do you call it, there's enough uh, illumination for uh, ships in the distance. While spider lamps were a setup, or a step up rather, <laughs> tongue twister there, pardon me folks, while spider lamps were a step up from previous lamps, did spider lamps themselves have disadvantages? Yes, they did. How so? The lamps alone produced large amounts of smoke, which often found its way onto the lantern's room glass panes. Okay, so the smoke will um, get into the panes and leave uh, what you call filthy residues. And then the smoke alone can, became so overwhelming to where lighthouse keepers themselves had to leave the lantern room. Think about it, if they stayed there, there's a very strong likelihood they could have died from uh, smoke inhalation. Remember, we don't have smoke alarms, modern-day smoke alarms at this time uh, that would, um, that would uh, give people an indication that, hey, something's wrong, you either need to evacuate or uh, you need to do something now rather than later to put out the uh, fumes, but... But when um, large amounts of smoke were generated by these uh, spider lamps, yes, it could pose a lot of problems within a short period of time. And while, yes, spider lamps did improve uh, lighting, I will admit this, folks, that 
even the spider lamp's lighting alone was not strong enough. And this impacted mariners, you know, that is uh, mariners, you know, from the sea. Since a light's strength alone helps determine how far it can be seen come nighttime. So let's think about this, folks. Just because a lighthouse is lit at nighttime, well, I mean, throughout the day, but mostly nighttime, just because a light can be visible, say, 10 miles away at night, doesn't mean that you're going that it's visible enough to where you're going to be able to see where you're um, going to be going in terms of um, arriving into port. You would like to think so, but the bottom line is is that no matter how um, no matter how bright the light may be, there's no guarantee that um, that its strength alone can help determine how far it can be seen from a from a from a close or long range distance. So here's um, here's going to be a good um, example of where perhaps physics would come into play. Physics 101. Now I will admit um, I did take a physics class in college. It was part of a general ed curriculum. It was called Introduction to Astronomy. Now I will admit that was a great class and I had a great professor and what was even there were a lot of things about that class I enjoyed. One of them in particular was uh, one night um, all of us in the class got to um, go outside and uh, our professor met up with us and we got to look uh, through a telescope. And it was no ordinary telescope. I I don't believe it was anything like what NASA has, but it was um, it was definitely a couple of steps above the standard 101 telescope. But we were able to see a planet or two and we were able to see different uh, constellations in the sky. So that to me was a, a very unique experience. What I will tell you this is that we won't be getting into anything um, Einstein related or um, anything of uh, Newtonian principles like the principles of inertia or laws of gravity. But what I do know is this, the distance from which a lighthouse or let alone a lighthouse's, lighthouse's beam becomes visible depends on two, frac on two factors. The height of the light above sea level being number one and its intensity. So we have a lot to consider here, folks, about lighthouses. And for starters, I can already tell you this much, no two lighthouses are alike. And perhaps that's a good thing as well. So, how about a little true or false right here? The higher the light, the further its beam becomes visible before disappearing over the furthest point, a.k.a. a line where sky meets earth, or I should say a horizon? True or false? Is, is it true that the higher the light, the further its beam becomes visible? The answer is true. Think of it as, as this, an intersection point where earth and sky are on the same page. Whereas the, if it's the opposite, where the lower the light becomes, then the less likely its beam would become visible. Okay, how about an even more um, sophisticated example? If you have um, 
a lighthouse that's 50 feet high seen from a maximum distance of 14 and a half a lighthouse that's 50 feet high can be seen from a maximum distance of 14 and a half miles with the person standing on on a ship's deck being 15 feet above sea level so that's not that's not bad at all uh, for a 50 foot lighthouse knowing that if you are on a ship's deck you're 15 feet above sea level, but yet you can see uh, the lighthouse from a maximum distance of 14 and a half miles. Close to 15, but not just quite at that number. But if, if there's a lighthouse that's 100 feet high, it could be seen just over 18 miles in the distance. A light's visibility per height, also known as its geographic range, so let's keep this in mind, folks. If the taller your lighthouses are, the greater um, the likelihood it becomes that that visibility will be um, more feasible in terms of long-range distance. On the other hand, if there is one factor that can't be controlled, that's weather itself. Think about it. Fog, rain, snow, um, if it's foggy outside, and let's just say there's you have a 100 foot um, light, a lighthouse being a being 100 feet high, instead of 18 miles in the distance, being able to see it on a regular clear day. Worst case scenario, if the weather is bad, in the, in the case of foggy weather, that visibility could be cut drastically in half, or let alone below half. So half of 18 being 9 miles, but if the fog is so bad, you might be lucky enough to see the lighthouse perhaps 4 miles in the distance. Light intensity itself refers to uh, strength or overall amount of light, of light produced by a specific lamp source. Okay, so now we're talking about intensity here. You know, sometimes, you know, when we're driving at night and, you know, we'll need to turn our high beams on uh, just so that we um, can have, so that we can improve our ability to see where we're going in the nighttime. Well, what do we need to do when another car comes by in, in the opposite direction? We need to turn those light beams off. Otherwise, it will blind, it can blind the uh, other driver. So when I think of um, in light intensity, that's an example right there of uh, with cars you know yes we have our headlights on but oftentimes we need um, a greater uh, degree of light um, what do you call it yes illumination or, or I should say visibility to see where we're going and that's why we have our those uh, beams called high beams so distance alone increases Distance increases, light intensity decreases. Whereas distance decreases, light intensity increases. Uh, I know that sounds complex, folks, but light intensity itself, yes, refers to strength or overall amount of light produced by a specific lamp source. So if the distance alone increases, the light intensity will decrease. In other words, you will be able to see your the object better 
without relying on so much light. But if the distance decreases, then the light intensity increases. So in other words, if you're not if you're only four miles away from port or into the harbor, the lighthouse beam itself won't be as um, shiny as it would be, say, from a distance. Now, look, I know I can admit right now that maybe some of my explanations perhaps don't go beyond 101, but at the same time, it is the best I can come up with. I'm kind of sounding like Benjamin Franklin in a way, you know, when I mentioned from my previous podcast how Ben Franklin was the one who said about the Constitution, it's not the perf- it's not the most perfect document, but it's the best we could come up with. Sometimes providing answers to um, topics that you might not be familiar with can be a challenge onto itself, but if you know that you can give it your best and come up with the best answer there is possible, that's really all that matters. So again, as I said earlier, I know I'm not a physicist, but some of what I um, garnered um, information-wise, or let alone obtained for this uh, podcast session, is the best I can come up with in terms of um, explaining um, the most simplest of uh, physics um, understandings uh, on a 101 uh, level. But one thing I do know is this, is that the distance to a lighthouse's light revolves around the intensity of the light itself. So, Think about this, no matter how close or far away you are to a lighthouse, or let alone its light, the distance alone will always revolve around the lighthouse, around the intensity of the lighthouse's light itself. There is no finite, or I should say perfect, relationship between distance and light intensity. It could change at any given time, but there will be some form of relationship, but it's not a finite one. In other words, it's not perfect. All right, I'm back. So, here we're going to get into some uh, good core uh, information right here, um, moving on up. Were European scientists and engineers already one step ahead of their American counterparts? in regards to devising better lighting techniques? I would have to say uh, the answer to that one is yes. It all started in 1782 with the work of Swiss-born physicist Aimé Argand, whom established a new type of oil lamp that replaced conventional methods. Instead of an individual wick, Aimé Argand devised a cylindrical one where the air alone could flow or move in multiple directions, increasing overall intensity of light produced. Why is this so beneficial, though, right here? Well, if the overall intensity of light produced is far more superb than it had been before under conventional methods, it also means that more oxygen is entering through um, the cylindrical uh, wick 
that also means less smoke. If that, if less smoke is coming through, that also means less um, less potential for uh, greater um, unforeseen circumstances, say smoke inhalation to uh, smoke getting onto the uh, windows glass panes. So less smoke will mean that, well, yes, you might still have some problems, but you won't have as much as you had before. So more oxygen, meaning less smoke, also is going to lead to what? Brighter lights. Well, this is definitely a big step up in the right direction. Argon's new device also included a mechanism for raising and lowering the cylindrical wick. I, I would say it's pretty uh, revolutionary for uh, this day and time in the late 18th century to create a device that um, can raise and lower a wick. It's almost like, you know, I, I work in the transportation industry. We have what are called um, web walls or captive beams. In other words, you can um, raise um, the beams to to um, any one level on a truck that will properly secure its freight, secure the freight, versus having to um, rely, versus relying upon a conventional load bar, which would only allow for freight to be placed on one level. So these uh, captive beams um, basically can be maneuvered to any uh, position uh, where uh, freight itself can be secured without having to um, rely upon uh, an old-fashioned method. Now, as for the light alone, it was far brighter versus a candle. That is uh, Ami Argon's uh, new device, the can uh, that the uh, light itself. And there were um, a lot of good, um, what do you call it, maybe economical or financial um, factors that came out of this. The light alone was far brighter versus a candle, and it, I would say at best it was roughly about five to ten, five to ten times brighter than uh, what a candle, than what the lighting on a candle could um, yield. The cylindrical wick alone, or the lighting that went into a cylindrical wick, burned cleaner and it cost less versus candles. Over time, Aimé Argand himself would add a glass chimney to the design, or let alone a cylindrical wick, where the smoke got eliminated along with reducing light flickering. The new lamp, aka Argand lamp, featured a glass chimney, forcing air closer to the flame, which improved lamp's effectiveness for brighter luminescence. Well, you know, Aimé Argand um, has gone to um, great steps to ensure that his invention is the real deal. We've already now seen that um, the cylindrical wick has a better uh, way to illuminate, five to ten times brighter than a traditional candle. It burns cleaner, it costs less, and smoke over time got eliminated, 
thanks in large part to a glass chimney, along with reducing light flickering. You know, think about this. You know, when a light flickers, we don't know when it's going to completely give out. Of course, we could say that even today with light bulbs, but, you know, it is safe to say that even lighthouses alone are providing the first form of modern-day electricity that we um, can associate with in today's world. Electricity has been around for a long time. We just have to remember that the concept of electricity alone has evolved over time. As I said from a previous podcast, when our forefathers were alive, they would have a candle lit to go from room to room. And um, sometimes uh, the candle alone was used, um, to obviously, to guide where they were going. But if it meant uh, having the candle on uh, to, say, talk to their children or to a loved one in the dark, that was their way of... Um, being able to see what was in front of them. Obviously, the lights in the lighthouse are um, essential for um, ships coming in and out and also being able to judge um, the distance they are, um, not only uh, from where they're at out in the sea, but how far, but the light alone, uh, as I said, if it's 100 feet high um, on a clear day, well, not just so much a lighthouse being 100 feet high, but if it's a clear day, what is a ship, an average ship alone could have about uh, 20 uh, miles of good visibility. But of course, if the weather wreaks havoc, then we know that it could be greatly reduced by half or even more than half. So let's just keep in mind, folks, that electricity, what we're seeing with the lighthouses at this time is that they are the guiding force behind what we would eventually um, no, uh, to be Thomas Edison's version of modern-day electricity. Now, what was significant behind um, parabolic reflectors? I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, how are we switching gears all of a sudden? Well, let's find out here why we have switched gears, because there's a good reason for it. What is significant behind parabolic reflectors? Well, here we go. The more reflective the surface, less light is absorbed, but regardless of quality being high or lower tier, a parabolic reflector creates a beam of light, hundreds of times stronger compared to light source by itself. Parabolic reflectors were added to the argon lamps. Well, there you have it, folks. No matter whether it's a high or lower tier um, reflector, it's going to be able to um, create a beam of light. Regardless of how strong it is, it's going to be able to create something alone that will give outsiders like ships a better means of determining just how bright the the beam itself is and and how close they are to shore. So we've just we've talked about Aimee Argon being the uh, first European to take the bold step. What about the Americans? Which American entrepreneur will become the first to modify his nation's lighting inefficiencies? His name is Winslow Lewis. It's an interesting name. 
There is a place even in uh, Maine called Winslow, Maine, and something tells me that that more than likely could be named after him. Well, let's find out a little bit of uh, background information on Winslow Lewis here. He was born in 1770, same year that that infamous Boston Massacre took place. And it turns out he was born in Massachusetts. He was born in Wellfleet, which is uh, in between, uh, which is um, located near um, Truro and Provincetown. He followed his father's career, being that of a mariner. From 1796 to 1808, Winslow Lewis captained or commanded a ship involved in the packet trade um, industry between Boston and Liverpool, England. This um, trade involved importing items like coal, salt, to iron. And he went on to have um, a distinguished career. He was uh, elected as a member to the Boston Marine Society in 1797. The early 19th century saw Lewis himself devise an argon-style lamp with a 9-inch metallic reflector from behind to con that also included convex glasses in the front. So, I'm sure many of you are wondering, well, how is this any better than what Aimé Argand himself devised? And could some question his, what do you call it, his skill thinking here by saying, hey, didn't the Europeans already do something similar to this? It's very possible, but rather than play 20 questions, how about we try to learn more about Winslow Lewis's lamp and why he sought to do things differently. Winslow Lewis's lamp, his lamp alone, or the designed, or his lamp design aimed or let alone sought to increase light efficiency but many, if not all, of the basic components to his lantern were already in use overseas. Whereas Aimé Argonne's lamp, his lamps were of higher quality and had parabolic reflectors that, um, that focused on uh, generating beams of light that, um, that could yield um, tremendous uh, visibility results Winslow Lewis's art Winslow Lewis's version of the argon lamp in America were a lower quality and the reflectors were more spherical in shape versus being parabolic what are some main differences between parabolic and spherical reflectors all right, we've already mentioned that parabolic reflectors generate strong beams which shine straight ahead. That is, they focus on one um, sector. In other words, the parabolic reflectors can stay put. You don't have to worry about them going up and down at any moment to where you're not even sure that once they get positioned somewhere, it's just a matter of when or if when or if um, any true um, luminous luminosity will even um, yield meaningful results. So, whereas with the um, spherical reflectors, they generate light. 
but the light itself doesn't always get positioned where it's needed. There you have it, folks. With parabolic reflectors, the light is positioned to where to where it's needed to be able to generate um, brightness, whereas with the spherical reflectors, it's just a game of cat and mouse. In other words, the light source fluctuates. It either goes up or down with no guaranteed with no guarantee of getting stationed in the middle. So with um, spherical reflectors, it's always going to be hit and miss 50-50. So, you know, most people probably would wonder, hey, if you're not getting 100% results all the time or close enough to it, why still use uh, this lamp or your version of the argon lamp with spherical reflectors that fluctuate in terms of um, in terms of uh, bright lum of uh, light luminescence. Well, despite the mixed results, Winslow Lewis, well, despite the mixed results Winslow Lewis had with his version of the argon lamp, did he still manage to obtain a patent? Uh, believe it or not, he did, folks. He was issued patent number thirteen oh five on June eighth of eighteen ten. I will, I will tell you this, the patent office during this time was, um, there were very few people working in the patent office, and I think it's fair to say that there were a fair number of people who got patents that maybe shouldn't have gotten them. It didn't mean they were bad people, but you just have to wonder, did someone really do their homework first before issuing someone, in this case, like Winslow Lewis, a patent. But nonetheless, he got one. And he's going to um, go forward and, and do some other unique things. So in May of 1810, a month before patent number 1305 got issued, Mr. Lewis went to the Boston Lighthouse. He got permission um, from um, Henry Dearborn, who worked as a uh, customs collector for the Port of Boston, Matter of fact, um, Dearborn, Michigan, um, not far from Detroit, is named in that man's honor. And then he got um, permission from other uh, government uh, people, uh, most notably Albert Gallatin, who was a treasury uh, secretary, treasury or treasury of the secretary, I should say. So uh, Winslow Lewis uh, goes to the Boston Lighthouse in May of 1810 to set up a lamp demonstration with the purpose of proving his lamps. His version of the argon lamps would use less oil versus a traditional spider lamp. The results proved to be true. The oil itself was, the oil, let alone folks, was the number one operating expense for lighthouses. So Lewis is on the right track with uh, being able to prove to people that, hey, his lamps, while they may not be as sophisticated as Aimee Argonne's version overseas, they are um, using less oil. Lewis himself also conducted the same lamp demo at Thacker Island, not far from Boston Lighthouse, which would once again prove that, it, that his lamps alone used less oil. It could help government cut down on oil expenses. You know... Even in the 19th century, we were using oil, but we weren't addicted to it. Not in the same way like most of the world is today. 
Now, there's something unique about March 2nd of 1812 for Winslow Lewis. Congress passed legislation on that date allowing Albert Gallatin, the Treasury Secretary, to obtain Lewis's patent, along with hiring him to install new lamps into the nation's existing lighthouses. Okay, so they are, they're really sold on his new version of the argon lamp that um, cuts down on oil costs. So I think it's a great step in the right direction. And so, however, um, Winslow Lewis does have a timeline uh, to abide by. He's got to see to it that all existing lighthouses get refit with new lamps within a two-year span. That means he would have to pretty much have all of it done before by the end of 1814. And then the lighthouses alone, or not just the lighthouses, but the lights inside have to remain in good condition for at least seven years. So that's going to require a lot of, of uh, inspection as well as just general uh, maintenance uh, procedure practices. By December of 1812, Lewis and his team of crew had refitted 40 out of 49 lighthouses. So we're not quite at 50, but we are almost there. Well, 1812 presents its share of problems because Congress declared war on England in June of 1812. For those of you who aren't familiar with the War of 1812, I'll try to give you as brief of a synopsis or overview as I can. I know that there was probably a fair number of you who are still um, listening, who have been listening to my podcast since um, June of last year, uh, you would have remembered my uh, the book I did uh, called uh, Through the Perilous Fight, written by uh, Steve Vogel, From the Burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner in the Six Weeks that Saved the Nation. Um, the War of 1812 um, had been brewing for some time, and Ever since America got its independence from from England, we may have independence didn't mean we got everything. We got political independence from England, but we never got true economic independence. For many of years, um, England had been plundering our seas by um, engaging in what was called impressment. They were capturing our sailors at sea, forcing them to uh, fight alongside the British, in large part because England was experiencing a so-called shortage of uh, sailors enlisted in their navy. And then to make matters worse, they were um, not only impressing our men, but they were seizing our cargo and basically um, ruining our ability to navigate freely along the waters. Thomas Jefferson, during his time as president, most notably come 1807, I mean, he was president from 1801 to 1809, but come 1807, he has gotten very fed up with um, the problems overseas that England and France are, impo are, are creating for Americans. So he institutes um, a piece of legislation that the um, Jeffersonian Republicans in Congress pass called the Embargo Act of 1807. Thomas Jefferson was convinced that if the United States stopped trade altogether with these two nations, that they would be the ones hit hard economically, whereas we wouldn't. He also wanted us to become more um, self-sufficient to where we didn't have to always rely on European goods overseas um, as a means of um, essential uh, services. 
While Thomas Jefferson, as much as I um, enjoy learning about him, given that he is one of my favorite Virginians to read about, while this idea was noble and very brilliant, it sadly lost its luster on paper. Well, rather, I should say it may have looked good on paper, but it lost its luster when people's jobs were um, were lost, or let alone their livelihood. Many in New England were deeply impacted by this embargo to where um, ships were held up at port uh, to where they could not deliver their goods. Um, and instead of uh, reaping in surpluses, we went from um, surpluses to deficits operating in the red. It took about three years for this embargo act to finally be lifted. But if there was one thing Thomas Jefferson was not remembered for as president, it was the Embargo Act of 1807. And believe it or not, Winslow Lewis himself was impacted by the Embargo Act alone to where he was put out of work and he decided, rather than sitting on the couch doing nothing, to take matters into his own hands. And that is where he went about instituting his version of Aimee Argonne's Argon lamp. So there you have it, folks. That's how Winslow Lewis was able to come up with his own version of the, I mean, of, of the Argon lamp, but in from the American um, standpoint. So yes, June um, 1812 is a very um, difficult time because Congress does declare war on England in June of 1812. And Winslow Lewis is already uh, in he already has his own uh, schooner, which is a sailing ship. For those of you who aren't sure what schooner is, this sailing ship was called the Federal Jack. And Lewis himself, along with his crew, would go about um, repairing lighthouses as well as adding in the new uh, lights. And he was almost close to being done, but unfortunately he and his crew ran into bad luck. On March 1st of 1813, the crew um, were captured by a British frigate, being a warship called the Aeolus, not far from Charleston, South Carolina Lighthouse. And Lewis's schooner, being the Federal Jack, was sadly stripped of all of its contents, especially the lighting equipment, for lighthouses in southern states. So, obviously, he was not able to meet the deadline due to being uh, taken a prisoner of war. He was in prison for three months, but was released on a prisoner on a prisoner exchange in June of 1812. In a few years um, shortly after, the Treaty of Ghent Peace Accord, signed in 1814, officially ended the War of 1812. Winslow Lewis himself goes back to work, which included st installing new lamps, or let alone lamps in the remaining lighthouses. And at, the, and at the very beginning of January 1816, uh, Mr. Lewis signed a seven-year contract to deliver oil to lighthouses along with providing other supplies or let alone essentials as well as keeping lamps in good shape. His service is very valuable, I will tell you that right now. Yes, there might have been those who might have questioned his version of the argon lamp, but I will admit this, you've got to give the man credit. I mean, he, he did something very extraordinary. There were those who saw that it had its value. There were others who questioned it. But the bottom line is it did go somewhere. 
if they didn't accept his version of um, of the argon lamp. I'm not sure who else could have come up with something uh, so different to where oil costs alone would have been um, perhaps reduced in half, which they were in this case. Despite his uh, contributions behind Lighthouse Illumination, I will point this out to you all now. Yes, he, Winslow Lewis had lots of contributions behind Lighthouse Illumination before and after the War of 1812. However, by the start of 1820, going forward, America's lighthouses are going to be entering a, um, an era marked by controversy and uncertainty. I don't know for sure how long this era will last in terms of the controversy and uncertainty. What I do know is that I will do whatever is necessary to find out how long that uncertainty was and share with you all, my fellow listeners, what's important behind it, but how we as a nation are going to get out of it. Because one way or another, it's one thing to um, face a time of uncertainty where controversy is involved, but it's how we as a nation are going to get through it and what we, what we can do to learn from it so those mistakes don't happen again. I do believe it could be fair to say that this era that we'll be discussing in the next podcast um, episode regarding the controversy and uncertainty that America's lighthouses will face could revolve around governmental bureaucratic red tape or a lack of um, leadership where, where top leaders don't want to reinvent the system. Well, the only way we'll know is that is when I'm on the air again with you all next, we will discuss those um, hypothetical um, answers or let alone questions. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, and I've enjoyed being on the air with you all again, as I always have. Thank you for listening. Continue to spread the word to those who want to um, listen to um, Anchor Podcast and what it has to offer. Tell them to come to my site. They won't, be, they won't miss out on anything. I can assure you all that 100%. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day and continue to stay safe.